Well, hello, streaming audience. Uh, welcome. I'm not sure what you're watching this on. If you're watching it live, you're watching it on Facebook. Um, we might still, at least for a time, have videos posted on YouTube. I'm kind of figuring that out. We're trying to transition over to Rumble, but unfortunately, Rumble does not lend itself to a user-friendly experience uh, for the uploading person or, as it turns out, for, the, for our purposes, for the uh, general public. It, it doesn't let you stack the videos in sequence, no matter what you try to do. I even reached out to their tech support, and I was told, sorry, that's not what our platform does. So the videos end up being randomized. It's... And for us, we're working through books of the Bible in order. It doesn't make sense for us to have the videos all in different. Yeah. For, uh, so, so we now have uh, we've we've we're putting stuff up on something called Sermon Audio, sermonaudio.com, and that's going to be a warehouse for a lot of stuff. I'm excited about the potential. I haven't even figured out, unlocked all the secrets that Sermon Audio will let us do. Right now, it's putting all of our videos up, and uh, when the videos go up, it automatically converts the audio into a separate audio podcast. So if you just want to listen and not watch without using up a lot of your memory on your phone or whatever, uh, you can do that. And there's some other things apparently we can do that I'm still figuring out. So anyway, I'm excited about that. So um, three things that you're going to like have your Bibles turned to and ready to get to later on, uh, one of them relatively shortly. The message tonight is on Revelation chapter 6, so you're going to definitely want to bookmark Revelation chapter 6, because that's where the message is going to be centered. During the message, uh, I'm going to be reading a section of 1 Timothy chapter 2, so if you want to read along, no requirement, but if you want to, then you're going to bookmark 1 Timothy chapter 2 as well. And uh, before we get into the message, we're gonna, uh, we've got uh, a triumvirate of readers who are going to tackle Matthew chapter 24, so you're going to want to... Turn to Matthew 24 so you can read along with that as well. Uh, before we go any further, I guess, um, maybe we can get Angela to open us with a word, word of prayer, if she wouldn't mind. Our Father, our God, thank you for this gathering and bringing us safely together to learn from your word. I will. Father, we invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to be in us and amongst us. Father, that everything that is spoken would be grounded in truth, would be a revelation of truth. We ask that you give us understanding, Father, as we speak, wow. so that everything that we say, Father, is in alignment with your word and your will and would advance your will upon this earth. We thank you for this renewal of our mind and with truth. We depend on you for it, and we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So if you will grab your Bibles, open to the first book in the New Testament, the book of Matthew. We're reading from chapter 24, uh, Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And when we do these readings, sometimes they are directly connected and then even referenced in the sermon that follows. Sometimes we read them because they just provide a, a broad um, context for us to understand that when John is talking about things and the imagery that he uses uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, he is making use of an awful lot of imagery and concepts and, and, and different visual aids, if you will, or, or teachings that are from the Old Testament uh, imagery, and he's not alone. Um, the other biblical writers and Jesus himself uh, makes use of what we learn in the Old Testament as well, and so this is an example of that. So we've got our three readers who are going to in turn hopefully remember which verses are, are yours. But starting with the uh, first one, Matthew chapter 24. Jesus 
left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when, when will these things be, and what will the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of, of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The abomination of desolation. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of, spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the roof, the housetop, not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nerving nursing infants in those days pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the sabbath for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now no it never will be and if those days have not been cut short no human being will be saved but for the sake of the elect those days will be cut short and if anyone says to you look here is the christ for there he is do not believe it for False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in our rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of the Man. Wherever the corpse is, there will be vultures, or there the vultures were gathered. Immediately after the tribulations of those days, the sun circle, will be darkened, circle. and the moon, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learns its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation, or no, yes, will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The reading that I'm going to read is from the Complete Jewish Study Bible. Um, Verse 36. But when that day and hour will come, no one knows, 
not the angels in heaven, not the Son, only the Father. For the Son of Man's coming will be just as it is, as it was in the days of Noah. But back then, before the flood, people went on eating and drinking, taking wives and becoming wives, right up till the day Noah entered the ark. And they didn't know what was happening until the flood came and swept them all away. It will be just like that when the Son of Man comes. Then there will be two men in a field. One will be taken and the other left behind. There will be two women grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken and the other left behind. So stay alert because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But you do know this. Had the owner of the house known when the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you too must always be ready for the Son of Man will come when you are not expecting him. Who is the faithful and sensible servant whose master puts him in charge of the household staff to give them their food at the proper time? It will go well with that servant if he is found doing his job when his master comes. Yes, I tell you that he will be put in charge of all he owns. But if that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is taking his time and he starts beating up his fellow servants and spends this time eating and drinking with drunkards, then his master will come on a day the servant does not expect at a time he doesn't know, and he will cut him in two and put him with the hypocrites where people will wail and grind their teeth. Mm. So be ready. And uh, what does it mean to be ready? You know, we've been, uh, last summer, we did kind of a boot camp on sharing the gospel. And we are trying to get better at that and be consistently proficient at articulating what the gospel is. And so we are in turn each week, we're kind of taking turns sharing the gospel. Um, if you weren't around then, there's people in this room that weren't around then, uh, the gospel gets shared uh, about what the elements of the gospel are gets shared in different ways. The most common way that you hear about it is it's about uh, creation, fall, redemption. All right, there's a creator, and then we fell, and then there's a re- and then we have a redeemer. Uh, but everything doesn't everything is centered on and fixated on, and most importantly uh, focused on the cross. But that's not the fullness of the gospel because there's something that happens in the lives of believers uh, because of the cross. And so, in addition to redemption, there's also a restoration, a sanctification process, ultimately leading to glorification. So there's, some people talk about a threefold gospel, which is uh, creation, fall, redemption. Some will talk about a fourfold gospel, which is creation, fall, uh, redemption, glorification. Um, As we've been working here at our church, it's about creation, fall, redemption, restoration, glorification or sanctification of glorification, whichever word you want to use in that fourth position. That would be a full-orbed gospel presentation, and most of us aren't very good at sharing that because we maybe don't have a full-orbed understanding of it, perhaps. And so practicing this helps us to do that. And so actually, um, Dina's going to tell us what the good news is. <laughs> well, we were meant to be in relationship. There are not any of us, yeah, we want our alone time, but we crave fellowship. We want to be in fellowship. But there are so many things that get in the way of relationships, namely our sin. We are incapable of having a relationship, not only with each other, but more importantly, with the one who created us. 
He created us because he loved us and he loves us and we are worthy. We are worthy of a relationship with him, but we just can't do it because we, we fall short all the time. We do not love perfectly. Even though he loved us first, we can't love him back because we sin. We are desperate in our sin. And he loves us so much and wants to be in relationship with, with us so badly that he actually sent his only son, Jesus, who has done the relationship perfectly for us so that we can share in that relationship. Not, But it's even more than that. He puts on the righteousness that he has for us and takes our sin so that when God looks at us, he says, oh, my bride, yes, I have perfect relationship with you. Not for anything you did, but because my son did it for you. And I gladly give you that gift if you would just receive it. And upon receiving it, it gets even better because then we learn how to have not only a relationship with each other, but a relationship with God. And we grow in that day in and day out. And there's an abundance in that. There's true living in that. There's life. There's joy. There's the fruit of the Spirit. All of it. We learn how to be patient and kind and good and, and joy-filled. And it's this process that goes on and on and on to the day we die where we finally have glory. We see God's glory in its fullness and he shares that with us. And that is the good news because that is what he wants for all of us. And so... Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And ultimately, thank you, that is the call of the book of Revelation. <laughs> Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is the call of the entire scripture, actually. <laughs> so let me uh, go take my station. If you want to uh, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, we're going to read our way through that from start to finish today to provide a a broader context of, of everything we're doing in this chapter. Let's see if I can... So Revelation, chapter 6, it reads, I looked on when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a thunderous voice, Come! So I looked, and here came a white horse. The one who rode it had a bow, and he was given a crown, and as a conqueror he rode out to conquer. Then when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come! And yet another horse, fiery red, came out. And the one who rode it was granted permission to take peace from the earth so that people would butcher one another, and he was given a huge sword. Then when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come! So I looked, and here came a black horse. The one who rode it had a balance scale in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice from among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat will cost a day's pay, and three quarts of barley will cost a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. Then when the lamp opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come! So I looked, and here came a pale green horse. The name of the one who wrote it was Death, and Hades followed right behind. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill the population with the sword, famine, and disease, and by the wild animals of the earth. Now when the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar 
the souls of those who had been violently killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, How long, sovereign, master, holy and true, before you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Each of them was given a long white robe, and they were told to rest for a little longer until the full number was reached of both their fellow servants and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. Then I looked when the Lamb opened the sixth seal, and a huge earthquake took place. The sun became as black as sackcloth made of hair, and the full moon became blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth like a fig tree, dropping its unripe figs when shaken by a fierce wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the very important people, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who was seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to withstand it? This is the word of God. It's God-breathed. So we use for that phrase, inspired. This is inspired of God. It is infallible. It is without error. And as such, it is a fully sufficient rule and guide for faith and life practice. So those with ears to hear, let them hear. Well, with last week's message, and now reading this week's passage, we're really getting into the fun stuff now, aren't we? Huh? Death and destruction. That's not really all that fun to you? No? Well, then you must not be a Marxist. <laughs> you know, I kid and I mock the Marxists because, well, the Marxists and their Marxist spirit of the age, they deserve to be mocked. But God is not mocked. That is for sure. And we can see that by reading about God's wrath and judgment right here in the book of Revelation. We have entered into the portion of the book where the the judgments begin to be unveiled. But as I've said throughout our study of the Apocalypse, this letter of visions that's related to us by the Apostle John, it is not purely linear. It's better to think in terms of it being cyclical. This letter of visions related... uh, by the Apostle John, recapitulates ideas over and over again. For example, we happen to be right in the middle of a section that began in chapter 5, verse 1, and it runs through to chapter 8, verse 1. In that section, it runs parallel to chapter 8, verse 2, through to chapter 11, verse 19. In both of these sections, they have an opening scene, followed by six judgments, and then an interlude, that promises the care of God's people right before the climactic judgment of those who are God's enemies. This is an important structural note for us to keep in mind. From the start of chapter 6, which we just read, all the way through to the first verse of chapter 8, we're giving the first of the seven-cycle judgments, judgments that come in seven cycles. And again, each of these has an opening scene, introduces the origin of the judgments. And the first four seals, which we detailed last week, they all kind of belong together as a cluster, as a group, as will the 
first four trumpets and the four bowls. Now, if you missed last week's sermon and our spirited discussion afterwards, it covered in, with some detail the first eight verses of chapter 6. And uh, where we see that there are four living creatures corresponding to four horsemen on four horses of four different colors affecting the four major regions of the world, the land, uh, the salt water, the sea, uh, the rivers and lakes, the, the fresh water, uh, and the air or the sky. And these four riders on these four horses, they bring conquest. It's a tyrannical kind of conquest. So they bring tyrannical conquest and war and famine and death. And the language and the imagery that we find here it might call to mind Old Testament passages like Zechariah chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, I was attentive that night and saw a man seated on a red horse that stood among some myrtle trees in the ravine. Behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. We might also be reminded of other portions of a New Testament, something that's actually similar to what we read um, about 10 minutes ago. This time, though, it's going to be Mark chapter 13, verses 5 through 8. And it says, Jesus began to say to them, Watch out that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. These things must happen, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise up in arms against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. So the four horsemen here in Revelation chapter 6, they are sent by a supernatural God. But what they bring with them, what is wrought with them are natural tribulations. All the symbols that we see here of death and destruction that we looked at during our most recent time together last week, they're earthly symbols. So supernatural God is moving in history on earth. This is another example of something we've learned recurrently throughout the book of Revelation and other parts of the Bible too, something about the number four. Remember, the number four is a number that kind of reminds us that it's representing creation, things of creation. And speaking of biblical numerical meanings, altogether, of course, there are seven seals, seven Judgments and in Jewish thought, the number seven is the number four interpreting history. And why would that be? Well, because the Lord created the world in seven days. And so, in Jewish thinking, everything in history is understood in these seasons of seven. I don't know if you ever noticed, but the Jewish lunar calendar has 364 days in it. That's uh, Easily divisible, exactly divided by seven equals 52 weeks. I don't know if you ever paid attention, but our solar calendar that we all live on now technically has 52.14 weeks in it. Um, not so with the Jewish calendar. The Jubilee, which we read about in the Old Testament, that's uh, you know a cycle of sevens, right? Seven years, seven times, equaling 49 years before the 50th year, the year of Jubilee. Each of those seven years in, in that Jubilee cycle are symbolic, they're a representation of that one seven-day week. And so, the seven series judgments that we find here in Revelation, again, this is in Jewish thinking, this is how we understand and interpret history. So the fact that there are seven 
helps us understand that this is leading to the consummation of all things, the end of history as we know it. And the cycle of seven is repeated three times in the book of Revelation. And this repetition of three harkens me back to my days in the advertising world where the industry standard for a strategic campaign was to devise a campaign that would deliver an average weekly frequency of three. You have to tell people your message three times, every week, every seven days in the world of marketing to have a shot at being successful. So perhaps the Apostle John, once upon a time, you know, back in his day, he attended some sales and marketing seminars <laughs> because he relates to us three extended visions three times. And these are three warnings unto repentance. So keep in mind, the ultimate purpose of Revelation it might be said to inspire Christ's church unto repentance to then pray with John when he writes later on toward the end at Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, Amen, come now, Lord Jesus. And it's why he's warning us over and over again. Warning us three times in very dramatic Fashion, And I keep saying that it's John who's giving us these warnings. And, you know, in a way, of course, that's true. John is giving us these warnings. But in a more ultimate, precise, exact kind of sense, these warnings are coming from God. John is relating what God would have him relate. And God, he has done this using a threefold pattern of warning. And he has done this not just here in Revelation. He does it a number of times throughout history. There's ample biblical precedent for this. For example... Leviticus chapter 26, that records for us God's instructions for blessing to his people if they obeyed his commands. But if they refused to obey, well, then they could count on being thrice warned. The first warning would be plague. The second warning would be defeat in war. The third warning would be the destruction of their children and being sent out into exile. We also read of three judgments of God in Ezekiel, in three different places actually, in Ezekiel chapters 5, 6, and 21. So let me ask, what is your response to these prophesied judgments? How do you respond to these warnings? Is your response one of terror? One of throwing in the towel, believing all hope is lost? Or is your response one of repentance? Repentance would be the response God is desiring. His vivid warnings are designed to move his people to live in a state of constant repentance. And why is that? So that his people will live under his grace and will experience the fullness of the covenant that we have with him. So I want us to really hear his heart in this matter. To help us hear his heart, we'll look at 1 Timothy. I mentioned that earlier, so if you bookmark that, you can turn there now, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first six verses. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. First of all, then, I urge 
that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanks be offered on behalf of all people, even for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Such prayer for all is good and welcome before God our Savior, since he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one intermediary between God and humanity, Christ Jesus himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all, revealing God's purpose at his appointed time. That's what he wants. That's what he wants you to want. The warnings about the coming judgment, they are delivered to us so that we will be delivered from our sin and from the eternal death that accompanies our sin outside of Christ. In a moment, I'm going to have just a a few, a handful of things to say about the historical sequence and the sorts of things that very often, too often, I would say, dominate discussions and teachings that are centered on this particular part of God's Word revolving around this portion of the book of Revelation. But before I get into any of that, before I do that, again, I want us to pause just a couple of heartbeats, and I want us to hear God's heart in all of this. God tells you what He wants for you. And he tells you what you don't want from him. Theologian Dennis Johnson, he sums it up rather poignantly and succinctly. He says, As Christians see societies crumble and collapse, our response should not be terrified alarm as though our security were bound up with a fragile human network of law and order but rather with anticipation and confidence. The Lamb is now on the throne with God's plan for history firmly in hand. And Johnson says elsewhere, when we see in John's visions restrained and partial judgment, we are being shown symbols of the course of ordinary history between the comings of Christ. And sadly, this has become where the preponderance of the American church, the Western church as a whole, really, seems to focus. Not uh, on the eternal Christ-enthroned realities of Johnson's first quote, but rather on the ordinary history that he mentions in the second quote. People are seeking an answer. They want an answer to the question, When? Thus diminishing the question, why? What for? What results is an unfortunate emphasis on the things of this world. Earthly empires. And there are lots of ways that people do this. Here's just, we're going to give you just one such historical grid of how it can be outlined and I'm going to warn you now, if you're prone to headaches, you can you know, take your aspirin now. This is the kind of stuff that can induce an Excedrin headache. So you've been given fair warning. So the Christian church, prior to John's exile, 
on the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. The church experienced a season of progress. Some have even called this a season of triumph for the church. I mean, the church was expanding and growing by leaps and bounds. Thousands upon thousands coming to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, this season in the church has been correlated by some with the pre-Christian Augustan era of great peace and prosperity for the Roman Empire. All right, and then this is all blended together and extrapolated to cover the empire's general history as time marched forward beyond the first century. So, we're talking about Roman history right before Christ under Augustine, and then church history right after Christ for you know a few decades, let's say, correlating those two, seeing some commonalities and symmetry there, and then extrapolating from that God's move in history as described for us in Revelation chapter 6. Now, what followed in church history after the season of progress was a time of degeneracy and corruption and controversy. We can see hints of this already in Paul's letters that we have preserved for us in our canon in the New Testament. And this season of the church is correlated by these people to the era of war under Caligula. He ruled Rome right after the life of Christ. And so now you're taking the time right after Christ in Roman history, comparing that with church history, let's say a generation past the time of Christ, blending those together, and then extrapolating this to represent the Roman Empire's experience with a very long, decades and decades long period of civil wars. And again, I want us to keep in mind that this is all supposed to follow the pattern of Revelation chapter 6. So, what's that pattern? First, there's triumph, right? The first eight verses, talked about them last week, mentioned them again this week. So first there's triumph, and then there's war. Right? And then what? What comes next? What's third? Famine. Well, there was famine under Claudius, who was emperor following Caligula. And uh, this was a time of great civil strife. As you can imagine, for the empire in their history, I mean, people are starving to death, they get a little hangry, you know? And so all of this is then extrapolated to see from the church's perspective the world eventually entering into a time of darkness and ignorance of God's word. We talked about this a little bit last week, the idea of the famine not just being about food, but about a spiritual famine, right? Malnutrition from failing to spend time in God's word. And this history in the church that they're pointing to would be hundreds of years after Christ. You can see how we're taking these these little generations in the first century and then extrapolating and building things that are hundreds of years long. The next judgment in Revelation, the fourth one, death. Scholars like to say that this predicted the long epic, or do you prefer epoch, of iniquity within the church. And they then make a connection between this and the horrible pestilence that resulted from famine and war that we just talked about. That's a common cycle in world history of War and famine, that leads to disease on the heels of all of that. And, of course, the Roman Empire was no different, so that was part of their history. Now, we keep doing these sorts of extrapolations, and then we can see at least the beginnings of an analogy between what happened to the believers under Nero, one of the most infamous evil leaders of the Roman Empire, 
And we can draw a parallel from that church experience to all of the martyrs throughout church history and especially draw a parallel to the dreadful era of martyrdom that, uh, I mean, horrible, under Roman Emperor Diocletian in the 4th century. And it doesn't end there. We read about great convulsions in Revelation, right? All these convulsions, the earthquakes, things like that. Well, does this act as a predictor for the breakup of the Jewish state and Jewish polity? There are those who say absolutely. And does it act as a predictor of the breakup of the entire Roman Empire? Again, there are those who say absolutely. Well, as such, we could take it even further. And we could say that all of Roman Empire history is almost an allegory for Christianity and its history overtaking paganism with all the great upheavals preparing the way of the Lord. I got to tell you, there are people who love this stuff. They live for this stuff. And you know, maybe, possibly, perhaps, there's even a little something to it all. But honestly, this kind of an approach to the book of Revelation, it makes me a little bit, I don't know, nervous. It disturbs my spirit a bit. I grow concerned when we drift too far afield from the clear meaning of the text. I mean, Scripture it might be properly interpreted and applied in the way that I was just describing by doing all these extrapolations and correlations with history and all that. That might be proper. Then again, it might not. <laughs> so where are the guardrails? You know, if someone can do this with the Roman Empire, could they also do it with the European Union? The Soviet Union, the part of the world we call China. Could we even perchance do it for the United States of America? And if not, why not? I mean, what if I could develop a scheme where everything seems to fit pretty tightly together? Where I can explain it in a way that appears to make perfect sense. Can I do it then? Well, if so, says who? <laughs> What's the biblical support and defense for taking such a liberty? Who gets to decide if I'm right? Who gets to decide if my scheme is way off base? You see what I'm saying? Now, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. So what I am not saying is that this sort of thinking is automatically wrong. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying it's sinful to go through these sorts of machinations and try to connect the dots and puzzle piece it out or whatever. I'm not saying it's sinful. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that although it maybe isn't automatically wrong, it's certainly not automatically correct. And I'm saying that while it's not sinful, it might not be the best, most wise, most profitable path for us to traverse as we work at digesting God's prophetic word. When we're reading and studying the word of God, we must always keep the main thing, the main thing. And the text of scripture centered on Christ 
is the main thing. Anything else is at best an interesting aside and is at worst a dangerous distraction from the truth. What's the truth? Or, better put, who's the truth? Do we remember? Christ. Jesus Christ is the truth. He tells us that himself. You know, stuff about the history of the Roman Empire, that might be interesting. It might even be helpful. You know what? It might even be true. But don't major on the minors. I'm going to extend your Excedrin headache here for a second, so bear with me and don't judge my words until I finish the point, okay? Because I'm lending myself to the possibility of being misunderstood for a moment. What's true is important. Very important. But it plays a subservient role, an important role. But the subservient role of providing a path to the truth. The truth. Capital T is in the lead position because the truth tells us what is true. What is true is dependent on the truth. The truth illuminates what is true. Are you catching the significance of what I'm working to get at here? What I'm trying to press home. Knowing facts and data and statistics and philosophy and history and all that other good stuff that we want to know, that it's, it's, it's good to know, that we benefit from knowing, that we've been taught to know. That's all excellent stuff. But it takes a back seat to what is preeminent. The Lamb of God is preeminent. And He is truth himself. Settle for nothing less. And I was provided with a perfect illustration of this point. I don't know if you're paying attention to what's going on on TV these days in the game show world, but there's a player on Jeopardy right now that's gone on an incredible run. Has won show after show after show. Uh, won again yesterday. And uh, earnings now are up to like $1.3 million or something like that. One of the top four winners in Jeopardy history. So clearly, this is a player who knows an awful lot of things that are true. A lot of factoids, a lot of trivia, right? A lot of knowledge about things that are true. But this player does not know the truth. This player doesn't know that he's a man. Oh. He thinks he's a woman. He's deluded. He's given over to some sort of mental illness or something. I don't know. But he clearly doesn't know the truth, even though he knows a lot of things that are true. The truth supersedes what is true because what is true is dependent on the truth. So what this means practically, as we emphasize what's true, as... uh, as, as, as it's illuminated by who is truth, it is what exactly? This means, practically speaking, what exactly? Well, 
in the context of this particular text of the New Testament, it means that Christ, who came in the flesh 2,000 years ago, is returning again in the flesh. And when he does, he returns with wrath and judgment. You're talking about all this history, making the connections. You know, it's, it's like a long freight train rolling down the track. Big steam engines pass to spy. But the train still right there in front of us. I mean, we're counting the cars. They're right there in front of us. It's right there. We're counting the cars even. The train's right there. They keep speeding by, and yet the entire time, the train is still right there, right there in front of us. It's already arrived, and yet it's still arriving. Pointing to a big tension that exists in the Bible. The already, the not yet. You know, when I was a little kid, I grew up in the Chicagoland area, and... Uh, Chicago and its suburbs are a hub, really the hub, if you will, for the railway system of this nation. And so, it's a lots of trains growing up. Lots of train tracks. Now, I know everybody has seen trains. I get it. But in Chicago, it's a lots of trains. And my mom, she would, you know, be sitting in her car. She'd sometimes get a little bit frustrated and she'd have to wait for a particularly long train, especially when it seemed to be one of those trains that was in no hurry to pass, one of those long, slow, never-gonna-pass trains. And as just a kid myself, I'm guessing I could get a little bit antsy in a situation like that. And so, you know, sitting there, imagine yourself as, as a little kid, Situation like that, waiting. Waiting. <laughs> Wondering. Would it ever end? Well, to help to pass the time, my mom, she would encourage me to count the cars. But that would only go so far in assuaging my impatience. You know, counting the cars of the train, it's, that's the theological equivalent to counting the Roman emperors. <laughs> counting the number of crises in the church. Counting the... Uh, the passage of the centuries. So after a while, it's kind of like, eh, you know, okay, whatever, already enough. But my mom, she would have me do something else too when we were sitting waiting for the train. She taught me about the caboose. You know, back then the world was a much better place. And because it was a much better place, all the trains had a caboose at the end. Can't remember the last time I saw a caboose at the tail of a train. Well, my mom, she helped me to anticipate the caboose. And it was the highlight. It made the whole wait worthwhile. And truly, it did. I mean, seeing that caboose as a five-year-old, that is a high-value proposition, i got to tell you. I mean, the entire point of watching the train, counting the cars, waiting patiently with anticipation, was the arrival of the caboose. Jesus Christ is the caboose. His second coming is the caboose. You can count the cars all you want. Count the cars if you must. But don't ever forget that He is the engineer 
in the front handling that powerful engine that propels the train forward. And don't forget that He is present in each and every one of the cars by His Spirit that you see passing before you. The coal car, the box car, the flatbed car, each and every one. And at the end, there is a caboose. There is a grand payoff and it's so worth the wait. You know, seeing the caboose on the train when I was five, it would make my day, believe it or not. Well, just try to imagine seeing the return of our king. I dare say that might make your whole week, huh? Well, speaking of weeks, next week we are going to pick up where we left off last week with our detailed exposition of this chapter in Revelation, chapter 6. So last time we covered the first eight verses, next time we're going to cover the remainder. But as we do so next week, and as we prepare to do so in the coming week, let's, uh, let's be sure that we keep our attention fixated on the one who is powering the train of history, on the one who embodies the true meaning and purpose of the train of history, the one who's bringing to a glorious conclusion the train of history. And understand that that caboose, when it comes, it comes in judgment. So uh, let's be sure we're standing on the right side of the tracks. If you're a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, well, then you are on the right side of the tracks. And if that doesn't describe you, well you still got time, as it turns out. So get yourself on the right side of the tracks. Repent before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your plan. A plan that you had in your mind and in your heart from before the foundation of the earth. You've set in motion and you've called us into your plan. That you've called us unto yourself as your people. We are so grateful and thankful that we have a Savior, the Son of God Himself, sacrificing Himself so we might live, and then indwelling us by Your Spirit, guiding us, encouraging us, bringing us into a body of believers that can encourage and hold accountable each other. We ask that you would help us by your spirit to stay focused on the main thing, to not be ignorant of other things, to not be ignorant of things that are true. We desire to know what is true, to advocate for what is true. But help us to do this all in the context of knowing the truth, being busy about the work of the kingdom of truth, the kingdom of God, your kingdom that will be firmly and forever established at your son's second coming. And oh, how we yearn for that day. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, let me begin with my typical open-ended question.
Is, are there any thoughts, observations, you know, or questions you have or whatever that you want us to tackle? How many of you are familiar with the uh, habit of many to try to fit together a historical jigsaw puzzle like I described in that one example? And that's just one of, there are numerous examples of people trying to do that, taking seasons in world history and saying, oh, this sounds an awful lot like, you know, Revelation 6 verses 1 and 2, and this sounds an awful lot like, you know, a different part of Revelation, and we can connect these and... We can see that John was predicting that. Not with Revelation. I, I definitely, yeah, there's definitely events in world history where people thought that was, you know, that was exactly what the Bible described. You know, a classic example being Israeli War of Independence, where a bunch of Arab nations coalesced to attack the newborn state of Israel. Like, people thought that that would usher in the end times. Or World War Two, if you want to rewind the clock a little bit earlier. Great World War One, even. So there's a lot of events where that seem to have... Um, seem to have uh, seemed like the end times. Because especially when war and rumors of war and famine and stuff like that... Uh, you know... A lot of events that could be. Now, what's been your thinking about that sort of stuff? Well, it didn't happen then. What or at least Jesus then? didn't return oh. then. Yeah. I think that that's an important point for us to keep in mind, or I have a thought in my head now that's an important point for us to keep in mind, because I don't want the message today to have gone too far. Because I think that it's actually probably accurate to say that the cycle that we see represented for us in Revelation chapter 6 can be pretty neatly organized to match up with what happened in Roman Empire history. But you can also do it with more contemporary history and World War II. You can do it. There's a, there's a, there's a cycle here of, 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 of tyrannical conquest and uh, horrible wars. Almost and, like humans are given to I war mean, and conflict. When did the Roman Empire truly die? Like that's to even answer that question is debatable because you could argue that well they didn't die till 1453 when Constantinople fell. You, you could easily argue that, you, or you could focus on the sack of Rome, which was much more considered a dramatic event at the time than when Rome, the Roman government became ruled by uh, Ostrogoths and stuff like that. So when the the non-Italian or Latin people, were, or when they were ruled by the non-pagans you know, pagans or Germanic peoples, you know, that was not really a dramatic event, but, you know, that would have marked the political end of Western Rome. So it's hard to really fit that into a... Histor- it's hard to fit Roman history, for instance, into that cycle because you would have to yeah to make it exact, right? And so you give me a, actually give me a great foil again because what I'm cautioning against is trying to have this exactitude and say that Romans, Romans, Revelation chapter six, in instance, that's where we are right now. It's talking specifically about Roman Empire history, but what about the other guy who says no? It's about the church history more broadly, and they'll and uh, instead of the the uh, 
you know, the problems in the Roman Empire is the problems that faced the, the church with the rise of, uh, of Islam. Or others talk about the problems with the, with the papacy and all the church intrigue and problems. And it'll connect that with portions of Revelation and stuff. And the point is not to discount any of that. See, there's an interesting way to try, I'm trying to articulate this. It's not that doing any of that stuff is wrong, but we try to be too specific and exact, we get in trouble. So Ray's point of how do we even define the end of the Roman Empire exactly? Like, do we know the exact day and hour? Some historians would peg a spot, but somebody else would peg a different spot, perhaps. So we need to be looking at this thematically. Again, you know, I've mentioned this how many times. We need to approach the book of Revelation not like we're this close to a Monet or Manet and try to examine each and every little stroke of, 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 uh, of paint from the brush. We need to step back and take it in as this beautiful, intricate word, art, word picture masterpiece that thematically you can see what's going on. But it's not, it's apocalyptic language. It's not meant to be taken atomistically with each atom of every word, every phrase gets applied in a very specific way. That's not the kind of literature we have. There are other parts of the Bible where we absolutely should, must do that. So part of the context as we come to the the scriptures is to determine what kind of a text are we dealing with? What form of literature is this? Is it history? Is it law? Is it poetry? Is it gospel? Is it epistle? Uh, Just to name a few. Or is it apocalyptic? And so when we step back and we look at the broad images of Revelation, we can see how those broad images apply to the broad truths of our human condition in world history. And we can see these cycles repeat, which is why they repeat, I would argue, in the book of Revelation, to emphasize the fact that these are repeating cycles in world history. But we can't get down to the point of saying, oh, well, this verse must mean this for the Roman Empire, or must mean this for uh, the church in relation to Islam. We get ourselves backed into corners that are pretty difficult to defend. Well, I think um, I think we just human nature. We have to be really careful about um, exegesis and eisegesis. We have to be really careful about the context. And you're right. We have to keep we have to keep the context of His Word. It's very important. Um, and it's really easy to cherry pick and apply it. Man has a tendency to do that. We're not perfect. And I think that is, that is huge. Um, you just have to be really careful about that. I think a lot of the history from then, you can see a line, a thread, and types and shadows of things that are that are following right to history. And I think something that helps, though, is if you superimpose the map today over over what um, of the countries and everything of uh, the countries that that were. It helps understand kind of what's happening. You can see the history sort of repeating itself and some of the types and shadows that are happening with our world leaders and everything else. But 
And when you try to relate it in here, you just have to be very careful with the context. Before, when you get into the prophets, the, the major prophets, Isaiah, Daniel, and then Revelations. Wow, it's it's just it's incredible. But you have to let the Holy Spirit. You can't just. That, I mean, it's really it's hard because there are a lot of theologians that have said a lot of things that are you, know, it's, you really really have to just study them. I think so. You just have to really be careful about the context and how it's mm -hmm. you can misinterpret so much. I mean, that's what I really got out of what you were trying to say. There there is a lot of truth, but it's easy to step off the edge mm -hmm. and come up with your own you know it's like you're leaning forward. Yeah, I was Right? Yeah. Where all these things are birth pains, we forget 
stuff, it's going to be a lot worse than the building. Right. Right. It's going to be. It's going to be. Yeah. It's. It's. So we're. We're. I, I, we, obviously, today we're one day closer to the end of this age are, yeah. than we were yesterday. You know. I mean. So we can always be assured of that. You know. But um, we have to. It, it. It really takes a careful scrutiny of the scriptures, and, yeah, and an understand and a, and, a, and a remembrance that. This is, you know, we have to understand all of the prophecy about something yeah. to understand where we are. Um, we have to, one of the prayers that I like to pray is, Lord, give me, make me like the sons of Issachar to understand the times that I'm in. And know. discernment. Yeah, too. And to give us discernment, yeah. But, yeah. Because what it's too been, easy to cherry pick. Um, yeah. Know. And we do that, people do that often. Well, because we're... Human. Yeah. <laughs> but at least, you know, I'll, I'll give them this. At least they're trying to understand. You know, we don't do anything perfectly, right? But there are people who are at least paying attention. <laughs> and they're trying to understand. <laughs> and they're getting it wrong sometimes and perhaps oftentimes. But I will give them credit in, in this regard. They're at least trying to understand because there's a whole lot. There's many, many more people who aren't paying attention at all. Yeah, I think that the healthy approach on paying attention and trying to connect it to Scripture, uh, I think the unhealthy approach is to say, okay, I just got done reading this passage in Revelation. Now let me go see how this helps you understand this thing in the world. I think it's better if we're looking at what's happening in the world and we say, oh, that reminds me of what's in the book of Revelation. Because Revelation is... Uh, uh, it's not to be, if we do it in the reverse, then what ends up happening is the main thing is no longer the main thing, right? It says at the very beginning of this book that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's taken a couple of ways. One, Jesus is doing the revealing, so that's one way that the of is applied. The other thing is he is himself being revealed. And so it's, it's, it's a revelation of Christ. We get to see Christ more clearly. So this book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ and Christ at the cross and the fact that he's coming in and judgment and stuff, that's the what for. You know, I've mentioned, you know, we, we get focused on the trying to paint pictures in history and read the tea leaves out of the newspaper and stuff. We end up focusing on the when. But the, the what for is because Christ is to be glorified. He is worthy. He is the lamb who was slain and yet is still alive. Um... So if our focus is on magnifying Christ, if that's our primary focus, then we are much closer to properly understanding the book of Revelation. If we get bogged down in trying to read the tea leaves, again, well, there, there could be even a lot of things that are true in that. That's a secondary thing. That's not the primary thing that Revelation is about. Revelation is primarily about the glorious Savior we have in the Lamb of, of, of God. That's its primary word. This whole word, word, I think, is relational. You know, relationship. Learn. I mean, one, I never could read this book. What's that? Revelation, you mean, or no, the whole Bible? The whole Bible. I, before I, you know, believed. I, I just, it was like Chinese. I, I, I couldn't read it, but once I asked the Lord into my life, and, and, the, and the really good thing is it didn't happen all at once. I mean, I couldn't. I have to study it. And I always have these aha moments now. Uh, it doesn't happen 
you know, I'll read something and I'll go, wow, I didn't get that, you know? So every time I read it, usually a, a passage or something, he reveals himself. So the relationship gets better, mm. better and better. But it's, it is nice to know some of the history and relate to what's going on with the world and, you know, like I said, well, eschatology too, just, you know, that, but it just, just brings into perspective. Plus, um, like I said earlier, I, I use this book now, uh, this, this Bible, um, the Jewish study Bible, because he's Jewish and I, I never, it's a, you know, it's an Eastern, it's an Eastern faith. And so, I, I mean, it's, it's, all, it's ver, almost verbatim uh, with all the other Bibles, Bibles. And I used to read the King James all the time. But this is, it's really cool because of the Jewishness that's been brought out in him. I knew nothing about Hebrew or, or anything. And I, I find that very comforting now to learn about the customs and you know, uh, you know, more about him. It, it's helped in me understanding him as a, as a, as a God and a person. So, uh, like I said, this whole book, like you said, is, um, it's all about him and yeah. glorifying Well, and you talked about, him. you know, before you were a believer, you know, you, you couldn't even read the, uh, the word. But, you know, the word is foolishness and or stumbling block to those who aren't, you know, in, yeah. who don't have the Spirit. But those who have the Holy Spirit, their minds are illumined to understand these things. And so uh, and he reveals. unbelievers he reveals might think himself. they understand the Bible, but really they understand things maybe about the Bible, but they're not really understanding the Bible. It's getting back to the true versus the truth, right? Mm -hmm. They might know yeah. a lot of things that are true about the Bible, but they don't understand the truth because they can't without the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. It's, now the people on the far side of the room haven't said much. Anything you want to throw in? Yeah. No? Nothing? <laughs> she has a lot to say. She I know. Say. She waits till like nobody's around and then she you know, drops a zinger on you. <laughs> <laughs> She has a lot. Yeah, no, no. All right. I don't know if... Uh, I'm not sure if we'll be able to do our uh, our practice of the Lord's Prayer uh, today or not. It seems that we have a little bit of rambunctiousness. Do you think that she's up to, to uh, doing this? Because the attention will be on her. Oh, okay. She has nothing but Thomas. <laughs> she has a lot to say. I just wish I, wish I knew how it related to Revelation. We'd incorporate it. All right. So, not that we don't know the Lord's Prayer, but Nadia is okay. working towards memorizing it, and so we want to make sure that we're doing the same version that she is, that she is, the same English translation that she is uh, memorizing. Um, you might not be able to read till next week. My sense is small. Oops, I'm sorry. Nadia, all right. All right. Do you want to you want to try right. first? Nadia's turn. Hi. Nadia's turn. All right. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. 
Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth. As it is in heaven. Give us this day. Our daily bread. And forgive us. Our debts. As we also. I also have forgiven, have forgiven our debtors, our debtors. <laughs> and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, now as one body, let's do it together. And Nadia, she can try to join in, or at least she can appreciate what we're doing what she just did, okay? Again. Are you ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have given our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You like that one? Good job. That, right. by the way, is the first time she's done it all the way. Through. Yeah, I was surprised she went that far. I think she only went okay. through like the first. Well, she actually, we had only practiced up till about halfway or good. under halfway, but she just went like that. Yeah, because we're going to be reusing them. Yeah, every we week. do it every week with her then. Oh, that's so, I want to remind you, and if you're participating at home, that's a reminder for you as well. And if you aren't already participating, it's an invitation to start us. The beginning of the year, our, our, our first time together in the new year, we talked about preparing for rain. And so the simple version of it is I was encouraging people to take the next 40 days from the start of the year, which would take us like into the middle part of February, to put into place the beginnings of some practices or renewed commitment to things that won't end after 40 days, but will provide a platform, set the stage for continued uh, work on behalf of advancing the kingdom, being prepared to receive God's blessing. We're praying that God would restore his people, that God would restore the nation, that God would restore our relationships, that God would restore our faithfulness. But what are we doing to prepare for that to happen. If God actually answers your prayer, what's that going to look like? And are you prepared? So let's do things during this season to be prepared. If you haven't started yet, you can start your 40 days now, I suppose. And this is really kind of between you and God as, how, as far as what you're doing. I had mentioned the possibility of maybe prayer and fasting or some habit change or whatever. But whatever it is you're doing to prepare during this time, for great things to happen to glorify God. Whatever those are, I want to remind you that we're not to give up on those things. We're just past the halfway point. This is a time where a lot of people would drop off. So I'm encouraging us, if we've dropped off, to maybe jump back on. 
Uh, and if you haven't done it all yet, I would encourage you to try to find something you can focus on, something you can do uh, that will help to prepare for the rain that we're asking from God. All right, so just a little, little encouragement and reminder. So we're going to do the last half of chapter 6 of Revelation next week. That'll be exciting. I know it feels like maybe we're going to a snail's pace, but part of that's because we had a huge disruption for many months where we didn't get to make any progress in our study of Revelation. So we'll get done eventually, assuming Christ doesn't return in the interim. Oh my gosh, so distracted. Yes. Sorry about that. I would blame that I'm old age, but I'm not quite old enough to get away with that one, I don't think. Right? So yes, word of closing prayer if you would. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for this time of gathering, and we just thank you for the message that we were able to receive today. And we just, uh, you know, lift up our, uh, lift you up, Lord, and just exalt you and you alone as God and our Savior. And we just pray that many would be saved who are without. And we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. All right, so we, if all things remain according to plan, then we will be back on Facebook uh, 6 o'clock next Saturday. Until then, God bless.